Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel. We've been studying this for several months now, and we'll continue our our study through this great book. And not to have you going up and down, but one more time, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a longer section, so bear with me. Hear the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out, of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josic, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nera the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, and the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elkiam, the son of uh, Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, uh, the son of Nashon, uh, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the Son of God. And all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. Now, just to be fair, no one really knows how these are pronounced, all right? Usually some first-year seminary grad will say, well, that's not how that was pronounced. Listen, we don't know how it was pronounced, so just sit down. Um, These are not names we use anymore, Uh, not many of them. And just like uh, they weren't calling people Nancy and Jill and Jack and all these other things. So just just names, but important names as we will see. 
So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the unrivaled son. The one that we can look at and stand in awe of. The one we can look at and see the, the fulfillment of all of your promises. Promises that go all the way back to the garden. Lord, that you are a God who comes through. You are a God who meets sinners in their need. You are a God who keeps your word and keeps your promises even when the people to whom they were promised aren't worthy and fall short, not once, not twice, but time after time after time. And Lord, in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, like us and yet nothing like us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to save his people from their sins. And we give you thanks this morning as we consider your Son through the Lord's table, through the written word. May our eyes be set upon him May our hope be fixed upon him. May our joy and delight be found in him. And may our security and assurance be found in him. Strengthen your people, O Lord, according to your word, we pray. Amen. It's told of Leonardo da Vinci that when he was about to depict the face of Christ in his famous fresco of the Last Supper... He prepared himself by prayer and meditation. Yet when the time came and he finally raised his brush to give expression to his thoughts, his hand trembled. An attitude like that, a reaction like that seems fitting of any attempt to grasp the grandeur and the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. He is without equal, without adequate comparison. He is altogether unique. He is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's unparalleled. And so we will see that very reality this morning in the pages of Holy Scripture. He's God's Son and He's the only one qualified, or at least at this point in his ministry, he's the only one who will be qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And so when we say he is the unrivaled son, that's an understatement. That's simply us trying to come up with words that might describe the glory and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. As one minister in the 1900s declared, quote, 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. 
There's none like him. And Luke has already made that abundantly clear. And we're only in chapter 3. We've seen it in the opening pages as it's announced by the angel Gabriel that a young virgin will give birth to a son unlike any other birth ever recorded in the history of mankind. The son's unrivaled entry into this world. We've seen the humble yet unrivaled pageantry of his arrival that included angels, hosts of angels, declaring and singing of the Savior who was born in Bethlehem, who would bring peace and joy to all men. We've seen the unrivaled Son as we've listened to the prophetic declarations of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. As we've listened to that old saint who's there in the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for God to come through in Simeon, we know that this son that Luke is talking about is, is without equal. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. His matchlessness is even on display at the age of 12 years old with the way in which he asks questions and even responds to those teachers who are there. In fact, Luke told us in chapter 2, verse 47, all who heard him were astounded at his understanding in his answers. He is unparalleled. While he is like us, he is also not like us. He is astounding teachers at the age of 12. Now, some of you may have astounded your teachers, but for different reasons, right? And Luke has only begun He's only just begun to unveil the surpassing greatness of Christ. We left off last week with John the Baptist even testifying to this greatness. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what he says concerning Jesus Christ. He says, One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. John the Baptist understood the magnitude of his ministry, but more importantly, he understood the majesty of the Messiah. He understood that he and the Messiah were, though men, though even related, vastly different. One is not like the other. And the text before us this morning simply continues to reveal this very reality that he is the unrivaled son. And this morning I want us to note three evidences for this. These serve as three affirmations that demonstrate, that, that show us that Christ is unrivaled in every way. He is unrivaled in every way. The first one we see in verse 21, it may just seem like, narrative that we read, but I would point out that this is a surprising association. Concerning Christ, it's his surprising association. Notice what it says in verse 21. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. The significance of Jesus partaking in John's baptism has been discussed throughout church history. The main issue being 
quite obvious why would the sinless Savior, God's Son, God in human flesh, need to receive a baptism of repentance. As we know, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why would Jesus be included in that? He had no sin. Even John recognized the oddity of Jesus' request. Matthew's Gospel records that when Jesus arrives at the edge of the Jordan to receive the baptism, that John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You see, John the Baptist didn't envision as part of his job description, baptizing the Messiah. Why would you baptize the long-anticipated promised one? So John the Baptist was a bit taken off guard. When the Messiah, when Jesus walks into the water and says to John, baptize me. John was unaware that Jesus what John was fully aware that Jesus wasn't just any other person coming in like the scores who were coming in to be baptized. So why is Jesus baptized? Well, there's several reasons that you could say that we could give. One, Jesus' baptism is a nod. It is an endorsement of John's ministry. Uh, it, it, it is uh, it is acknowledgement that they are connected. Uh, it's also a sign that John's mission, the very reason for which he has arrived and come, has been accomplished because the Messiah is now unseen. You were you were sent to prepare the way, and he has done that. He is here. John, as he even said, must decrease, and Jesus must increase. And that's exactly what happens. But also, by being baptized, Jesus is endorsing John's message. The need for people to repent. The need for people to to turn and embrace God and follow Him. That's what the righteous ought to do. They ought to listen to John and obey Him. And while Jesus has no need to repent, he still identifies with the people. Don't forget that little phrase. I don't think that's unintentional. While all the people were being baptized, Jesus included himself. He identifies with the very people he will represent. He identifies with the very people that he has come to save. You might recall in Matthew's gospel that when John the Baptist was reluctant, Jesus responds in John, sorry, in Matthew 3, verse 15. Jesus says this, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If you read the book of Hebrews, which we looked at chapter 7 for our reading and for our communion meditation. But if you look at chapter 2, you read that in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says this concerning Christ. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that is in physicality, in humanity, he himself, that being Christ, likewise also partook of the same 
that, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. He gives help to his people. Therefore, listen, he had to be made like his brothers. And what's that little phrase in Hebrews? In all things. In all things. So that he might become, <clears throat> excuse me, a merciful and faithful high priests in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. It's a wonderful thing. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but just to consider for a moment. You know, you think to yourself at times as you walk through this journey that you're all alone, that, you've never, that no one else has gone what you are going through. And you are brought face to face with, with a Messiah, with a God who has. He, he endured it all. He experienced it all. He was made, in, uh, made like us in all things. He understands temptation. He understands betrayal. He understands it all. He even identifies himself in a baptism that he doesn't even need. If he was going to deliver us, if he was going to bear our sin, he had to be one of us. If you've been paying attention to Job, and I'll close our service with Job 9. If you've been paying attention to Job, Job was asking that very question, that very longing. Someone who could lay his hand on both of us. Who could do that but Jesus, who is both God and man. He is without sin, that is true. He came to fulfill all righteousness. And that's certainly what is happening here in the baptism. The details that Luke has provided show us that he was a son of Abraham. Not just in genealogy, but in action. Don't you remember the details that Luke provides? He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's presented by faithful parents as being the firstborn along with sacrifices, both as the firstborn and for his mother who is being purified after giving birth. And I don't know if you notice this, but in that account, it's the only account we have, it's the only time we have this account in any of the Gospels, and I think it's intentional. When Jesus is in the temple, and he says to his mother after they find him, right? After they find him, he says, I, I had to be in my father's house. I don't know if you noticed, after that his parents find him, and he goes with them, and this is what Luke adds. He says, and he went down with them. That is, Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth. Don't forget this little line. And he continued in subjection to them. Translation, he obeyed his parents. He obeyed his parents. He is fulfilling all righteousness, every step of the way. Jesus is the perfect man. Every step of the way, Jesus is the perfect Jew. Now that's something that Matthew highlights, the perfect Jew. This is something 
that Luke is highlighting. He is the perfect man. He honors his parents. He's fulfilling all righteousness. And so he is identifying with his people yet again in this baptism of John. It is a surprising association indeed. But it is a necessary one. And notice, right after that, as the Son identifies with us, the people for which he will save, that immediately the Father responds by identifying with the Son. Notice what happens. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, just a footnote, that's a major theme in Luke and Mark. And listen, if the sinless Son of God is in communion with the Father, how much his redeemed saints need to be in communion with the Father? But as Jesus is praying, we read, heaven was opened. Realize that whenever that happened in Scripture, either God manifested himself in some way, he spoke, or both of these things. We see this in Ezekiel. We see this with Stephen in Acts 7. Uh, And we even see it in Revelation 19 with Jesus in his return. So this baptism is an unrivaled event. This isn't just anyone's baptism. And what follows is proof of that. Jesus' ministry is greater than that of John's. And we see that in our second point that shows the fact that he is unrivaled. We've seen already his surprising association. Now see the fact that that the son is unrivaled in his stunning endorsement. In his stunning endorsement. If you follow athletics, you know endorsements are a big deal. Right? Endorsements are a big deal. In fact, if you've ever read a book, or if you go to seek to read a book, right? You look at, at the back and you see who endorsed this. Who is endorsing this work? Well, notice what it says in our text. Who is endorsing the Son? Who is giving the Son the stamp of approval? None other than the other two members of the Trinity. Notice what we read. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them. Sorry, descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son in whom, in who I am well pleased. This is a, a double Think of all the endorsements that he's already received concerning the uniqueness of the son. We've already seen witness after witness come forward confirming, affirming, endorsing That this son is like no other. That this child is like no other. Gabriel has done it. An angel. Elizabeth, the mother of John. Mary, his own mother. Zachariah, the angels. The shepherds. Simeon, Anna, and even John the Baptist. All of them have testified to and endorsed the very reality that this is the chosen one. God is on the move. All of God's promises are coming to pass in real time in history. And that this is Abraham's seed and David's son. He is God's son. And if you want any more endorsement, heaven itself has spoken. The Spirit 
and the Father have made their choice known. And there can be no confusion. There can be no uncertainty as to the identity of Jesus Christ. This is the promised Son. So this whole event is epic. It's absolutely stunning. It is a stunning endorsement. God's God's Messiah, his servant, comes on scene and he will now begin his mission. The, the whole intention of why he is here. And he receives the endorsement of the Spirit and the Father. It is important to see that the Spirit descending here, especially in Luke and Acts, it's not just in terms of empowerment. I know we often think of it that way. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit And I think that is true. But one thing you will find in Luke and Acts is more more often than not, Jesus, that his miracles and his power are attributed to his own authority in his own person and his own name and not solely attributed to the work of the Spirit. Now, I believe there's mystery in in how these these things all went down. But I, I caution us. I know we try to make sense of the hypostatic union, which is, I know, a big word. How do we make sense of two natures, that Jesus is both God and man? How do you make sense of those two natures in light of, you know, everything that Jesus did? When he does the miracles, is he doing it as a man or is he doing it as God? And the answer is yes. He's doing it as a man, empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. He's doing it as God. Yes, he's doing it as both. And we don't have to put these things at odds with one another. And I, I find it mostly unhelpful when people try to make a, a stringent dichotomy between, oh, that was his man, his man nature and that was his God nature. He's not divided in that nature. He's not divided in that nature. Instead, just, wow, we should be in awe. We should tremble at such a man who is God in human flesh. We should marvel. And so the Spirit does empower. And at the same time, He is doing these things in His own strength and His own power. Again, maybe I'm answering a question that no one is asking. But I do think it's important. When you you come to these things where you're just so amazed at Jesus and His humanity, right? We're going to see that as He as he's tempted in in Luke 4. You're going to get a taste of his humanity, and you're like, man, he understands us. And I would say delight in that. Have your your vision of Christ and include that. But then you come to a section where you're like, oh, wow, he's nothing like me. Man, who can do that? Who Who is that that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy who can forgive sins? Who is he? Oh, he's God. That's the point. He's not like you in that sense. And we stand in awe and include that as well. Notice in the text that the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. You might read that and think, that's weird. What does that mean in bodily form? I think it's just a way of capturing the reality that this is a, a visible experience. This is a visible experience. In fact, you look at John the Baptist and he testifies to the fact that he saw it. When he's in the water, he sees the Spirit descend. So it's visible, it's audible, it's, again, confirmation. It's endorsement 
That's what's happening here. This is my son. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. If you're confused concerning the identity of Jesus, we ought to be so no more. Heaven has spoken. And now Yahweh himself, the Father, bears witness that this is his son. And this is a a stunning endorsement on a number of levels. One, we must say, there's no higher endorsement than the Lord's, right? There's no higher endorsement than the Lord's. We've had angelic endorsements. We've had human endorsements. We now have heaven's endorsement, heaven's choice. You know, right now we're going through, uh, you know, a political political parties uh, deciding who will run against each other. We're in the middle of these caucuses and uh, these events, we, the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire caucus and, and in South Carolina. You're having all these preliminary, who will be the endorsement of, you know, the Republican Party? And of course, we already have a Democratic president, so he will likely be uh, the one that's chosen. So we're going through all this process, right? Who, who is our choice? When the, when the dust settles after all of these uh, preliminaries, we'll have the choice man or woman, and they'll say, hey, this is the person who we put forward as to be the most helpful in our country. Well, at least that's the intention. I don't know if that's the way it is anymore. Corruption, right? But here you have Yahweh putting his stamp of approval. This is his man. Right? This is the man. This is the one from whom all of human history has been directed, has been waiting for. He is the main event of all of history. And in this one, all the promises of God are fulfilled. And so this is a stunning endorsement simply because of who is giving it. But second, it is a stunning endorsement because the language that the Father uses. You hear that, and if you've read your Bibles a few times, you would be able to start making connections. You you might be thinking, wait a second, I've heard that before. I've heard similar phrases, comparable phrases. And of course, the language that the Father uses catapults us back into the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Let me just remind you of a couple of them. Psalm 2. You remember that psalm, the nations are raging and warring against God and his king. And Yahweh declares in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of the, the rage, right? Yahweh says, but as for me, I have installed my king. And then in verse 7 of Psalm 2, he says of this choice king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Immediately when we hear this, this word from the Jordan River as Christ is in the water of baptism, It echoes of Psalm 2. Or how about Isaiah 42? This is almost identical. uh, Isaiah 42 is in that section of servant songs. And Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. And then it says this, I will put my spirit upon him. This is exactly what is happening at the baptism. This is the exact same thing. What is this identifying Christ as? Christ is that promised servant of the Lord. All those times you read throughout Isaiah about his servant, his servant who we are most familiar with in Isaiah 53, who will bear the sins of his people. This is him. And heaven makes that endorsement, drawing our attention uh, there again. Yahweh has just announced that this is the promised one. This is my son. This is my servant. But the words are also stunning because of what they say and what they say about Christ. Notice he refers to him as his beloved son. His beloved son. That he loves the son. One of the things you'll notice as you read the scriptures is that within the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit is, is affection and endearment, care among its persons. And one of the things that Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17 is quite striking because we know that this love, this beloved son, or you could say, this is my son whom I love, right? That this is not a new love. That this isn't a love like, hey, I just decided I love you, man. It's not that kind of love. This is an eternal love. Jesus says of the Father in John 17, verse 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. This has always been the beloved son. This has always been uh, the one whom the father loves. And so that is a stunning idea. the, The love the father has for the son. And that final phrase the father declares about the son is also stunning. In you I am well pleased. You want to know The father's assessment of the son, total satisfaction. Total satisfaction. He is well pleased. And by the way, this is a recurring reality, not only in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but in the middle, because it's repeated at the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it's not quite the middle. But then it's certainly demonstrated in the end. Why? He raises his son from the dead. Total satisfaction. Now dads, if you were to be honest for a moment, could you say this of your own sons or daughters? I mean, you could, but should you? And there might even be times when you can. There are moments of of sheer delight, moments of, of great pride with our kids, isn't there? But admit it, there are times when you're shaking your head at your kid. And you're like, in what world is that acceptable? What family did you grow up in? You know that's not acceptable. Your behavior, your attitude is unacceptable. And as parents, sadly, and if you haven't come to this conclusion, you will soon. 
sadly, we see ourselves in our kids, right? We, we, recognize, we recognize that struggle because we have it too. It's one of those things that we've, we've passed on, right, from gen- generation to generation, and that's the very thing that Luke will tie us back to. There are times we are displeasing to our parents. There are times when we displeased our parents, where our kids displease displease us in behavior and in attitude. The father is well pleased with the son. I mean, that is the highest endorsement with the highest possible score the son is unrivaled in his nature to, re- to receive such an endorsement. He is perfect, and it's important because if this one is to save us, to remedy the effects of Adam, then he must be perfect. He, he must be a better Adam, right? And isn't this where he's going to go? He must be a successful Adam. And that leads us then to this final point and not just his surprising association and his stunning endorsement but his striking family tree his striking family tree if you thought pronouncing the names in this genealogy was tough harmonizing this genealogy in Matt, uh, with Matthew is very difficult and complicated it's very different if you think of it this way, if you've, if you've ever tried to find out your own ancestry with sending in your DNA, you know there are unexplainable variations and difficulties, making definitive conclusions difficult because there's, there's gaps and there's possible connections, but not complete certainty. I mean, imagine now the, in the ancient world, the ancient world without DNA without Ancestry.com, trying to determine one's bloodline, and then readers 2,000 years later trying to make sense of what they recorded. And that's what we have here. It's difficult. It's a challenge. You read Luke and Matthew's genealogy, and it becomes quite evident that they're very different. The names in the two texts between David and Jesus are almost in total disagreement. They align for only approximately 17 names out of the hundred and some names that are mentioned. Matthew traces David's descendants via the royal line of Solomon and and Judah's kings. While Luke follows a line through another son of David, you see this in verse 31, instead of reading Solomon, you read Nathan. So do these differences mean that the genealogies contradict each other? Of course, this is one of those areas that skeptics will bring your attention to. And I'll just say this in, in, to make it short. No, it's not a, a contradiction, but I would say it is challenging. The, the details are difficult to discern at times. And one of the things you'll find as you read and study is there's no comprehensive solution that has won the day among scholars. It doesn't mean there isn't a solution, 
right? It just means you have to really work at trying to make the most sense of it. Now, if you want to read more on this, I'm happy to send you everything that I read and help you kind of navigate uh, through the various challenges. Time doesn't permit us to deal with that in great detail. So from what I can discern, there are two really good choices, I think. And I lean probably more towards one than the other. But one of the things that you'll find as you read these items is that both of them are based on a little bit of conjecture, meaning it's not specifically in the text. It might be true. It could potentially be true. It's a possibility, but it's not hard and fast. And so you end up kind of going, well, it's one of these, right? And I know we want to be dogmatic, and this is the way it is. Uh, It's the way it might be. It's possible. It's a good solution, uh, but uh, not without its challenges and difficulties. One solution, and this is probably the easiest one, is that Matthew's gospel is tracing Joseph's ancestry and Luke is tracing Mary's. That makes sense. That gives you, uh, you know, it makes sense of the fact that there are those differences because they come from different lines. It also makes sense of an interesting way in which Luke starts this genealogy. Look at verse 23. He says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph. Right? And so that's an interesting way to start a genealogy. Another thing that you find is in Matthew's gospel, there is much said about Joseph and not much said about Mary at all, and that that's reversed in the gospel of Luke. Very little to anything is said of Joseph, while everything kind of makes a beeline to, towards Mary. So again, this would be an easier solution for sure, but there are a host of questions that arise from this view as well. Like, why didn't Luke just say that it was Mary since he's had no problem talking about her elsewhere? And people will often then say, well, that's because, you know, he was speaking to the status quo of how um, genealogies are, are kept, that they follow the man. Uh, not the woman. That may be true. Okay, that's a possibility. Uh, but then you think, well, Luke pushes the envelope and pushes the status quo within with talking about women throughout the gospel. Uh, not to mention, there's a couple of other issues with particular names and such. So again, complicated. Okay, not a contradiction, but certainly complicated. The second solution. Uh, if it's not Mary's ancestry, then it's Matthew. Uh, sorry, that Matthew is tracing the royal lineage, right? The kingly lineage, while Luke is tracing the bloodline, the physical bloodline of Joseph. In this case, Jesus would have blood ties to David via Nathan and legal ties to David via Solomon. This view takes into account adoption practices. Again, this is conjecture a little bit because we don't know. But there could be adoption practices that are taking place where you have a father who adopts someone who's not their bloodline son, their physical son by birth, but they possess legal rights as an heir. 
Are you confused yet? Again, the details are complicated, and I don't want to get lost in those because I think more important than how to line up these names. Again, I don't think there's a contradiction. I think there is a solution. One of these two would suffice. But more important is Luke's intention and even his placement of the genealogy. Notice in Matthew 1 that, the geneal- I mean, that in Matthew the gospel begins with a genealogy where Luke puts it here in chapter 3. We've already read about his birth and all of those other things. And so, again, while, I mean, they're complex, but again, there are reasonable solutions, but not a reason to be dogmatic, I don't think, on that particular issue. So, again, you'll notice that another thing is that Matthew begins, uh, that he begins with, uh, he starts with Abraham and moves through the genealogy till he reaches Jesus. Luke, and again, I think this is intentional, begins with Jesus and works his way through David and Abraham, but he doesn't stop there. Luke traces that family tree, not just to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, which was Matthew's intent, but all the way to Adam, the first man. This is intentional. It's clear in both genealogies that Jesus possesses the proper family roots to be the promised Messiah. He's got the right bloodline, right? He's in David's line. Both genealogy clearly demonstrate that. That points out his kingly rights. He he is Abraham's seed. Both genealogies point that out. He is the Abrahamic promise. He's a Jew. But Luke's intention is different than that of Matthew's. With Matthew's, the point is, this is Israel's king. Back in Matthew's account of the temptation, Matthew seems to contrast Israel's unfaithfulness with Jesus' faithfulness. Over and over again, Matthew is demonstrating that Christ has solidarity with Israel. He's the fulfillment of all the covenants between Yahweh and Israel. But Luke's intention is different. To be sure, this unrivaled son is David's son. And he's Abraham's seed as well. But his connection to history doesn't begin with Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam. This unrivaled son is related to all nations. So we could even add... It's not just his striking family tree. It is his sweeping family tree. Because he doesn't end with Israel. He goes all the way back. Luke anchors Christ to all humanity. Jesus is not only Israel's king. He's the king of all kings. He's not just Israel's savior. He is humanity's savior. He is king and savior of all. And by the way, that's a theme throughout Luke. He's doing this intentionally. And by the way, this has always been God's plan. There there are no historical surprises here. In fact, the very text that I read from in Psalm 2 and in Isaiah 42 speak of this, um, the the nations, not just Israel, but all people. You might recall in Daniel 7, the vision that Daniel has about a son of man and I'll give you a hint. 
Jesus is going to begin to refer to himself in Luke as the Son of Man. That is not just a human title. It is drawing back from Daniel 7. Listen to what's said in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he came near before him, and to him was given dominion, that is, to the Son of Man, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's exactly what Gabriel told uh, Mary uh, at the announcement of uh, the virgin birth, right? Again, Daniel 7 should be echoing in our mind as we start to read in Luke that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. His kingdom includes Israel, but it it doesn't stop there. It's a sweeping kingdom. Don't forget in Psalm 2, he establishes his king. He makes his choice. He calls him his son. And then he says this, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. It was never meant to stop with Israel. It was always meant to expand. This was always God's plan. Now Israel, at the time of Jesus' ministry, had lost that vision, had lost that sight. Christ reminds them of it. It has always been national. It has always been all humanity. In fact... If you keep reading in Isaiah 42, which almost is a direct quote of what the father said of the son during the baptism. He he, he says, you know, behold my servant, he's my chosen one, I'm well pleased, I put my spirit upon him, right? But right after he says, he, talking about this servant, will bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations. By tracing the line to Adam. Luke is demonstrating the solidarity that Jesus has with all men. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And by the way, what is the song of heaven in Revelation? What does it include? That Christ has purchased for God some from what? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. When we get to Acts, which is the second part of Luke... Where are they preaching the gospel? Where are they being witnesses to the ends of the earth? Why? Because it's always been about the nations. It's always been about all people. And Luke has tied this reality in to the genealogy by tracing it all the way back to Adam. And isn't it interesting, the placement there, the very next thing, and I'm not going to preach this because this Jack will preach this next week, but the very next thing we read In Luke 4 is a temptation. Again, solidarity with humanity, but how? Through Adam. Through Adam. He was made like you in all things, Hebrews 2.17. He was tempted in all things like we are, Hebrews 4.15. So he is a sympathetic high priest, but he's much better than you. And he's better than Adam. 
And that's good news. You see, he was without sin, Hebrews 4.15 tells us. And because of that, he's able to do what Adam didn't do, what Adam couldn't do. Christ remedies Adam's fall to make propitiation for the sins of his people. See, Luke's intentional in this genealogy. He was one of us. He was one of us. If only Joan Osborne would have consulted the book of Hebrews and the book of Luke in writing her hit song, What If God Was One of Us? Which is somewhat of a blasphemous song, but it's a good question. And if you read Luke, Joan, or Hebrews, you will find he was. He was. That's the point. God descended and took on human flesh. In all of its limitations, he did for you what you could never do for yourself. He endured every temptation. We see that in Luke 4 of the flesh and the devil that that could ever uh, throw at him. He then endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And as Hebrews tells us, he made propitiation for the sins of his people. He is a better Adam. Where Adam failed, Christ is obedient. Don't forget that first point. He is obedient in all things. That's why we can say he's without sin. By the way, it's also why Pilate can say, I find no fault in him. He knew more than he actually was saying there. There was no fault in the son. If you put Luke 4 alongside Genesis 3, you'll begin to understand what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. <coughs> what Adam ruined, Christ redeemed. Genesis 3 depicts the fall of man and Adam and Luke in this genealogy and Luke in this baptism and Luke in the temptation is showing us the second Adam who will have reversed the effects of that fall. One falls, and we'll see next week, the other stands. That's good news for you and for me. He is the unrivaled son in every way. When you think of him, you should tremble as Leonardo da Vinci did, as the words of our closing song will remind us, come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. Here's the line, see the true and better Adam. That's his point. Come to save the hell-bound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, and here's where we see for next week, in him we stand. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unrivaled son. What confidence we have that in what was ruined in Adam was redeemed in Christ. What assurance we have that Christ is better in every way that he is unrivaled in every way. May we stand in awe of him and your wonderful plan of redeeming sinful man. Lord, we have benefited from it and we rejoice. Establish and encourage your people.